0: tonight's talk is on Resolve. It's the first talk on this subject. Uh, It's the seventh parami. And uh, I love the fact that it's uh, between two other paramis. The previous one is truthfulness and the one that comes after this is loving kindness or warmth, the warmth of heart. Because Resolve sits very uh, firmly between those two for a reason that I hope will be conveyed tonight so resolve I love this topic I love resolve I think uh, each one of us have uh, a line uh, that we refuse to cross but I for much of our lives that line is very vague and we find ourselves compromising many of our values as we get pressured on our job or by, if we're young, by uh, our friends. And we find ourselves where we thought we were resting and where we were assured uh, that we wouldn't uh, forsake a particular principle or value. Uh, We look back and we find that we've crossed that line many times perhaps in our life. And uh, but as the Dharma deepens in us, uh, we find that line resurfacing very clearly, do we not? Now, I don't think we have to go too deeply into our psyche to find where we refuse to go. Where it's simply, uh, it's not a, a reactivity of no. It's not a charged Uh, uh, forthright uh, obstinance it's simply uh, a no from love for instance murder I dare say there are very few reasons which I would do that I can't say none because I haven't looked at all the different scenarios but if somebody placed a gun in my hand and told me to shoot someone be it of the military or of the civilian I simply would say no. It wouldn't be a no like how can you ask it would just simply be no. And there, there's this point in Dharma where the the line of the line of truth uh, becomes a resolve of the heart. And the resolve of the heart is simply that we see the essence of connected, connection. Now, the essence of connection can be seen in many different ways. And I don't want to make this too vague or abstract so that you don't also feel as if you're seeing the uh, interconnectedness I'm speaking about. <clears throat> the interconnectedness is often felt before it's actually perceived as unity or oneness. And the way it resolves itself in our system, in our spirit, is that you don't want to harm anyone. That is interconnectedness. That is the perception below the conscious perception, the visual perception, that simply knows things deeper, a deeper truth in things than... The governing cultural truth of life, and Dharma, of course, allows that line to surface. That that sense of what's acceptable, what's justifiable, and where there just is no, you just not, just no, just a no. And love says a beautiful no, is a wonderful no in love. It's. it's a, I want to read. Uh, the no of Martin Luther King. I think you can get a real feeling for this no. And, and you listen to his his dharma. Now he uses different words. But listen to where his the boy, the float of his dharma is. Where he just refuses to move from no. And he says it this way. He was actually in prison... In jail, when he wrote this, he said, uh, We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer, and in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscious that we will win yours in the process as well. It's, it's that fact of where he just refused to go with the current of the time. And you can feel the no is the no of love. It's not the no. It came out as just we will move in this direction. And then the violence came at them. They didn't give back the violence. The African Americans or the people who sympathized with that cause didn't, if if the spirit of it was that, no. And that's, that's the resolution or the resolve of the heart. And that comes from seeing the truth. It doesn't come from being programmed into a moral issue by our parents or teachers. It comes from a, of a clarity within us that is both a partially wisdom, the scene of the truth, and buffered by love, which refuses to move from that place. And Dharma uh, has every uh, expression of that, uh, it, it utilizes that movement in every expression Of its growth and depth. Now, I want to regress for a moment because I get this question a lot, and I want to make sure that we resolve this question in our own hearts. And because Dharma talks about being with things as they are, which is the essence of wisdom, and the willingness to reside with things as they are. As the essential quality of resolve itself. Some people ask me, uh, innocently, if that means being with things as they are means that they have to stay in very troublesome and sometimes abusive relationships. Because, they say logically, Can't I just learn to be with things as they are? And some people even go a step further and say, you know, I'm not in charge here, I'm not in control, and therefore the universe will take care of this situation for me. Now that's naivete. Because being with things as they are is different than resigning to things being the way they are. Resigning to things being the way they are is a lack of really showing up for what is happening. It's like this is the way things are, I better just get used to it. But being with things as they are has both an active involvement of wisdom, the clarity of seeing, and also a response from love. And love does not stay in an abusive relationship, no matter whether these, this is the way things are or not. Love acts in opposition to violence, to conflict, to struggle. It acts to resolve that struggle. So let us not confuse that. I don't, I, I get, I'm, actually, it's occurred to me several times in questions. And uh, I just, I feel like it's such a fundamental misperception that I really want us to be firm in our understanding of what that means. True, we don't say when we become deeply embedded in Dharma, this should not be happening. That doesn't arise in my mind. It doesn't arise that this shouldn't be happening. I come to this class, I forgot the homework, I don't say, this shouldn't be happening. My, my day has been awful. I get back in the car and drive down and get the homework. It's, so, wisdom says, uh, this is it. This is happening. It doesn't dispute what is happening. It says, this is happening. But then love takes a response to what's happening. I could have said, well, I just won't get the homework. But I think that the homework is vital for all of you. I think it's vital. I think it's much more important than the talk. I really do. And therefore, I'm not going to sit back and be lazy about getting you that homework. And so the response of that for me was to drive down uh, and get it, as anyone else would do. There's a real nice story about Mother Teresa. If you'll just uh, let me tell a few stories tonight, I would appreciate it. I've told this story in previous talks, but I want to tell it again because it fits so nicely into the topic. Um, Mother Teresa was uh, outside of Beirut, Lebanon, uh, during the Christian uh, Muslim uprising there, I think in the 80s. And uh, she knew that in the middle of all that shelling in the inner city of Beirut was an orphanage of uh, mentally compromised children. And she gathered her forces together and she said, I have to go in there tomorrow and get those children out because the shelling is taking its toll. And the priest who was in a cut movement, said, uh, well, uh, don't you think you should uh, give God some time to work out a truce before you go in there? And she said, oh no, no, it's necessary for us to go in tomorrow. Resolved. Well, (laughs) something happened in the course of that evening. The guns stopped she went in, took out the children, brought them back, and an hour later the guns began to shell again. And what I liked more than anything was that her absolute resolve, that the priest was trying to give God time to work out a truth and Mother Trace's, Trace's response to that was God doesn't need time. God doesn't need time. And the absolute conviction of that resolution of heart. And when there is that resolution of heart, when there is that certainty, because it it contains a confidence, I hope that you're feeling, and I hope as we speak tonight you can monitor your own sense of resolve. Your own sense of resolve. Look back beyond the wavering, beyond the mind's trepidation, beyond its fear response. Look way back there where there is a line in the sand which you would not cross. And then just start bringing that forward through wisdom by seeing that it's not just in the most horrific acts that that line is there, but also just in basic harm and basic division and basic separation that there's a growing sense in oneself, in yourself, that you won't cross this line, that you won't add fuel to further division, to further conflict. I was reading uh, today in the Seattle Times, um, uh, his name is Krugman, he was writing a story on climate change in the editorial section, and he was lamenting how we are not very good at responding to crisis, that we are in a the global uh, climate is in a crisis, and that uh, he just doesn't feel that we have mustered the resolve to act upon that global crisis in a way that could save us in, the, in time. And I, I, too, feel that. But for those of us in the room here, We have a growing sense of urgency in that matter. I'm sure if you're conscious at all, you're also conscious of the earth. Consciousness doesn't stop with just your own body. It spreads out. It moves out beyond the individual to the collective and out beyond the collective to the earth and out beyond the earth to the universe. We hold the whole of that within our heart. And as we see the struggles and conflicts and deterioration of life around us, there comes this no of love that just says, I will not be a part of this. I will not add my own selfishness to this mix any longer. And that often acts as a motivating factor for us to move beyond our own central interests, our own individual interests, into the common good, into the common quality of shared, of shared um, generosity. It requires being willing to look at the hard facts in front of us, not denying any of those facts. That's where the wisdom and perseverance of insight uh, must be uh, addressed. To look at our life with a resolution that says, whatever the facts are, I will face them. I will look at them. That's the essence of the truthfulness on which this resolve is built. But the truthfulness doesn't stand there. It, again, is not a reactivity to all of those people who are doing something to the earth. It's a simple statement that I will not be a part of it. And I will do do as much as I can to resolve and rebalance this issue. So it's a composite of wisdom, of love, and of confidence. Now, sometimes we think of resolve. At least I did, as uh, the story I was read when I was a little boy about the little engine that could, you know, that you just, you just with stubbornness and inflexibility and rigidity, by God, you're going to go up this mountain under your own willful resources. And uh, that's a very different. That's a willful resolve, and I'll talk a little bit about willful resolve in comparison to wisdom and compassion, which has the capacity to hold adversity rather than to fight it. And those are two very different shifts, although the behavior may look the same. It's coming from two very different places. Before I do that, though, I want to remind us of the resolve the Buddha took when at the end of a six years of very trying ascetic practices where it said that he would eat, he would just put himself through gross um, ascetic practices like like refraining from eating much during the day and then slowly uh, eliminating his diet down to a single, it said, to a single grain of rice. So that you could see his backbone as he breathed from his front side. <clears throat> I don't know whether these stories are true, it sounds. <laughs> but nevertheless, at some point he said, well, this, this isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> Had an aha moment. <laughs> And so he says, "You know, I don't know what I don't know, but this isn't working." He says, "I've tried everything. I've tried every manner of practice that my teachers have told me. None of it's worked. I mean, there hasn't been any resolution of heart. there hasn't been any satisfaction. There hasn't been any contentment. It's just been struggle. And he says, "I'm tired of it." And he says you know, I think I'm going to sit here and I'm not going to get up until I understand. But he said it with such conviction that I believe that moment in which he said that was his enlightenment. He simply attested to the fact that nothing else worked. He didn't know what would work, but he knew convincingly that what he had been doing was not going to work. And at that point, his, he became very clear, very insightful, very wondrous about what was in front of him, no longer forming the conclusions of what his teachers told him or what he had learned, but rather he had put all that aside and in that tremendous emphasis of resolution, of resolve. So I'm not getting up there. And he meant it. He meant it wasn't like, I think I'll sit for 45 minutes, but my ankles are hurting, I've got to get up. This was it, he wasn't going to get up. It's, it's a quality of heart that refuses to yield to the darkness of the unconscious. And I love phrasing the Dharma now in very simple terms, which, when we phrase it in those terms, you can feel the resolve Coming out in terms of when we phrase it in vague terms that we don't really know where the dharma is going, then it's hard to resolve towards that because we don't we don't really understand. It feels so amorphous, so somehow intangible. But when we frame the dharma very clearly, like making the unconscious conscious, making ourselves conscious, then we get some sense. Oh yeah, I want to be conscious. There needs to be consciousness here. Last night I was in the beginning class and I got the question from someone. She said that uh, she had decided that she was going to try to be mindful while she was on the bus, and so she was riding the bus and she got along and then, uh, somewhere along the ride she decided that this was uh, the sense of mindfulness was interrupting her thinking that she would much rather think and, and that it was disturbing to her that she had to be mindful instead of thinking. She liked thinking. She enjoyed where thinking would go. She enjoyed just letting her mind drift. And she was using that as an argument for why she shouldn't be mindful. And I, it, sometimes uh, when I'm tired, I get a little brisk. <laughs> and I was very tired last night, and I got brisk. I mean, you know, are you telling me is that you don't want to be conscious? Because if you look at what a life lived through thought looks like, it's unconscious. You're not aware of where you are in the world. You're only vaguely, if at all, aware of what's going on around you because you're adrift in the flotation of your own thinking. That's the definition. Not being exact, noticing what's arising is the definition of being unconscious. So you've just convinced yourself that you want to live a life of being unconscious. But many of us make arguments for ourselves on why we should be unconscious. Why we shouldn't look at something. Why we shouldn't be truthful and face the fact. Because the fact might be hard to see. Is that a reason not to face it? Because the implications of facing this fact means that I might have to change. Is that a reason not to face it? Because what we're doing is essentially saying that let the dark forces of the unconscious be my master. And the heart is then no longer uh, accessible. And there has to be this resolution. It says, come what may. I'm looking at a bottle of water there that says true on the front. <laughs> <So I say. laughs> come what may, true. The truth. Wherever it, go, wherever it goes, that's going to be my guide. See, that's the resolution. That's the resolution of a Dharma student. And we realize that the consciousness, that the consciousness itself, that allowing the earth to receive our consciousness, to allowing other people to touch consciousness itself, through my resolution not to be unconscious, is a service to the planet, is a service to all beings, is a service to the universe itself. Simply the willingness to face our life. And it doesn't mean it's easy. It's very difficult to do. As, which is why it's, it takes so long. Is <laughs> we don't have the resolve in us to go where truth takes us. We want to kind of play with that truth. We want to kind of pull back. We want to go to a level in which we're uncertain on whether the truth is worth it. And then we kind of play between having it be worth it and trying to face ourselves at the same time. And sometimes we're in this kind of ambivalent position where we don't have any confidence that we have the ability to sustain what the truth will show us. So I have a a really nice hospice story. I have a friend physician who I was on staff with who uh, used to make house calls to dying patients. And one time he went to a home of somebody who was dying of lung cancer. And he brought the person who was lying down uh, into a, uh, put pillows behind him and had him facing him so that he wasn't lying down any longer, so that he could listen to his lungs through his stethoscope. And as he was listening to his lungs and looking into the patient's eyes, the patient started to die. And my physician friend followed the patient's eyes right till the patient died. So he said the patient pulled him into uh, death itself. And my physician friend came back to the hospice, deeply moved, deeply moved. And he said, "I, I now know that death is safe. He says, I know them. And there is a confidence in his knowing, a confidence, an unshakable resolve. Which before, we say that to people, but we haven't really experienced death ourselves, so we don't really know whether it's safe. We can say people die uh, mostly in content and serene ways. We can say that because we've seen hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people die in front of us. But we don't really know what goes on. Sometimes we see restlessness and we don't really, we can guess. But this physician actually accompanied the person to his death. And some way or other felt the absolute resolution in his own heart that death was safe. And was a very different physician from that incident, from that experiment. That is very much what we do. And and we don't look into the eyes of the dying. We look into the areas of unconsciousness. And we face them. And when we face them, we bring a light to them with unshakable confidence in the truth. And the resolution of truth to truth, for truth. And that this resolution of heart, just to see, not to pretend any longer, I'm not putting anything between me and what is arising, to see things as they are, brings a confidence that we can sit down in the midst of the most tumultuous mind, in the midst of confusion and doubt, in the midst of fear and inward oppression, and we can say, I'm not moving. Not because we're some kind of white-knuckled, macho person who's going to face his pain. It simply is not true all the stories all the narrative all the emotional impact all of the history and the historic all of the turmoil and the, all of it all of it simply is not true and the heart knows that the heart sees that it can story tell the mind can story tell itself into any corner. The capacity to hold adversity is resolution of the heart. The capacity to be willing to feel what life is bringing forth, but not to act from that sense of aversion or attraction to anything. Just to feel it. Just to feel it. Now most of us don't start there. Most of us don't begin our practice with the capacity to hold our inward life. We have to be convinced that we are alone and that it's the troubles are of our own making. I like what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. We have to be driven to our knees. We have to have often reached a point of despair in our life where we have tried every outlet, socially approved outlet. In which we realize that the way we are going can no longer be sustained. Or we will simply be crazy. We will go mad. And this point of despair that many of us begin our practice with. Is not the despair of an emotionally difficult life. It's simply wisdom that has yet to turn around. It's seeing That the normal and conventional ways that people seek contentment in their life is not and cannot and will never work for us. We've seen too much. We would love to go back into hiding, wouldn't we? Just to be blinded again. To go back and to be completely naive. And to think life could really work for me. Job, family, it'll all just be... But we've seen too much. And it's simply, we come to the realization that it isn't. And before we know what will, we know that this won't. And that's despair. And so we start by working on ourselves First, we realize that we're unconscious and that unconsciousness is the reason that nothing is working. We realize it. We see our reactivity, we see our conditioned patterns, we see ourselves lost and loving our thoughts. And we realize that this is the reason, this is the definition of why life isn't working. We see it. I mean, it doesn't take long when we sit down, we try to follow our breath, and we can't do it. We can't do a simple task consciously because our mind grabs us and pulls us away for 20 minutes. And we come back for a single breath and we're off again for 15 minutes more. And what something in us must (laughs) ring... And we say, I'm out of control. This is out of control. This is completely out of control. So, we go from complete unconsciousness to a willful resolve to be conscious. Now, that's an intermediate step that's very important for most people. That they take themselves by their lapel and shake themselves. And they say, okay, I've got to get myself together here. Now, we're opting on blind faith. We come to a class or we attend a lecture or we read a book that seems to indicate that if we do this practice with sufficient persistence over time, that things will straighten out for us. So we take it on just faith, blind faith, that this will work. But it requires a resolution to do it. I don't know very many people who have awakened without practice. People who awakened often scorn practice as unneeded. But how did they get there? What happens is that in our discipline, that's the heart. It's not just the will. It's not just the person of the egoic person who is deciding that he or she will absolutely become conscious. But it's a start, and it's the first throb of the heart that realizes that it has nowhere else to go, so it better go somewhere, and doing nothing is not acceptable. So it gets itself to the cushion. And it starts facing its inward demons, It starts looking at its mind, our minds. We start looking at our minds. And even though I, the sense of me, is very much in charge of this whole practice and this whole willful discipline, unless I did that, unless I gave myself over to establishing inward sight observation and looking at things, that's the crucible on which wisdom can begin to grow. If I just say, you know, it's all perfect or some other philosophy, it stays as a very intellectual and somewhat appreciated sense of the world, but it doesn't allow the very seeds of wisdom to grow in me. That has to be done through observation, through the willingness to look. Yes, it's Task-oriented, yes, it's forcing ourselves onto the cushion day after day. Many, many days in which we are just completely lost, sleepy, tired, thinking absolutely nothing is being gained over long periods of time, maybe even years. And then, perhaps not emphatically there comes a sense of how life is. You don't know how we gained that sense, how we accessed it, but there's a growing sense, insightful sense of the way life is. And as we grow insightfully in the way life is, we also see that the discipline we're using To see life is itself an obstruction of life. And that the more we try with effort and with forced and willful resolution, the smaller the aperture is for us to be able to observe. And the more relaxed and attentive we are, and open and spacious, the greater the space for observation. And we realize and see that the more we observe, the more wisdom we accrue. Has a discipline been necessary? Absolutely. For most people. At some point, does it fall away? For most people, it needs to. For most people, at some point, the sense of self itself is an unconscious tendency that holds the mind from growing in conscious awareness. And that if we really want to be conscious, if the resolution to being conscious is strong enough, we will even go into ourselves and dissipate it. By looking, by seeing if what we have taken ourselves to be is true. It's really what we have counted on and depended on and, de- and thought about and validated all along the way. And we see that Directly proportional to our ability to release ourselves arises this resolution of heart to continue the process of the enlightened process of seeing. And that willful resolution had its place, it kept me in line. It kept me from just floundering my days away, from despair. But that it wasn't the final solution. It wasn't the end. Understanding everything, seeing all inclusively. There cannot be a single thought unobserved. So egoically we cannot stay in the awakened state. The sense of I is unawakened. So it can't wake up. And therefore, the final resolution is the resolution to release the need to self-control our way into our growth. That there's a universal intelligence that is presence itself That takes over the guidance system that up until this point has been individually determined. And we do that by seeing that the narrative that drives the guidance system of the egoic sense of me doesn't contain the truth. It contains my emotional reaction to life. It contains the story and my memories of life. But it doesn't contain the now of life. It doesn't live September. As I read in the poem... I once as a monk I was always into sitting in competitive ways to other people that I saw around I, until I got to this one monastery where this person had been sitting a whole long period of time and he was just coming out of his retreating and It turns out that that monk had decided that he was going to sit and only get up twice a day for bath and for um, toilet. And he was going to sit 24 hours a day, only getting up twice, and he did that for three years. So, what do you think happened to my competitive? I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't even try. I, could, I couldn't, there was nothing in me that could even, and it really did something to me. It showed me how silly I had been. That this thing could go on ten years. Why not three years? Why not ten years? And it just, I just blew away the, he, the whole egoic involvement of that. And now I can't tell you. I don't sit with a clock. I, don't sit. I never have done that for now 25 years. That has not been a part of my practice. I don't think that way. Because that had just been blown out of the water. Through seeing. Through seeing the pain of my competition. Seeing that it was not getting me from, into seeing at all. The observation wasn't there. It was just competitive quality. And also seeing that there were no upper limits on this thing. So no matter how long I said I was a failure, if I kept going along those ways of thinking, the narrative never tells the truth. It's incomplete. To follow the narrative is to follow our sense of evaluation and judgment into our practice. We have to see through this. and allow ourselves to come to the true resolve of the heart. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as we're sitting... Find the resolution of heart in you. Find what knows why it's doing what it's doing. Not the part of your mind that is perturbed or disturbed. But the confidence That has the capacity to hold all of that, to be bigger than the unconscious, to enlighten the unconscious, the unshakable part, based in non harm. Based in interconnectedness, based in the truth. Okay, if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to answer. Right, okay. yep. So if I, you know, really if I think ahead about everything, it could go wrong and protect me. And I, and I have this situation happen that... Um, it, right, yes, right. It's just a heart, right? you reached a limit. In, right. But, but still, you know, I'm right. in that place of wisdom. Yes. But, but still today, I'm well, <laughs> I, mean, uh, I don't trust it. Well, Right. You were pushed to a, a line, you see. Yeah, and now I still think, oh, I, you know, I need to get up there and But that's doubt. Yeah, I mean, you, since you've been there once and you saw that line that wasn't reactive, that was a simple no, but it was a caring no. Yeah. It wasn't... Uh, um, then just... I mean, we can often feel it in ourselves. We don't have to just feel where you're unwilling... To compromise. Not because of some rigidity or inflexibility. Not because of a morality. But simply because uh, it's often an issue in which you see that th- there would be pain. And if you had met up with your husband, it would have been just more of the same. And you saw that. And so... Self-compassion, just saying no. So just find that place in you that feels deserving enough to be able to limit intrusion and compromise and all the different ways that we give ourselves away throughout the day. It doesn't mean to be ungenerous. It just means to consider oneself within one's generosity. That's all. And to be able to say no when that limit has been Exceeded. Often helpers in their helping professions exceed their own limitations because they think the need is so great. I need to give myself away because the need is so great. For me to hold any kind of self-compassion in relationship to my own needs, given this enormous need I'm facing, is selfish. No, it's not selfish. It's love to look at oneself and to see one's own limits. Yes. homework and struggle with it. Right. With fear. Okay, so the, she's asking about a question of the homework, which says resolve not to struggle with the energy. It to hold the energy, but not struggle with it, and the question is, how do you do that with fear? You see I love these questions because these que- that's your you know that's where the self sees no possibility, right? it's like, oh my God, I mean, okay, anger maybe resentment, yeah, frustration nah. fear, uh-uh, I can't <laughs> and we each have those. So let's just look at our own emotional system and see where it is that we draw the line. Like, you know, fear is it's just too much. Well, I had a, I've had a great um, training of fear <clears throat> since I have this uh, sleep apnea. I sometimes wake up and I can't catch my breath and I go into this self-preservation fear. And uh, then I think, well, if I'm going back to sleep, I'll just go back into my apnea, so I won't. So then I'm afraid of sleeping, and so I, I and, and, but I want to go to sleep, and, and yeah, the fear is keeping. And so I say, okay, my time is fear time. This is not about sleeping or not sleeping. I give myself over to the fear. I say, it's all about understanding this fear. So I'm going to just spend. If it takes me the rest of the night, then it takes me the rest of the night. I'm going to sit up, so I sit up in bed. And said, so what I'm going to do is, I'm not going to allow myself to leave the bed because fear says, get the hell out of the bedroom. Get lights on, watch TV. Escape from so this. I said, nope. I'm going to keep the thing. I'm going to stay on the bed. I'm going to limit what fear, the rule of fear, okay, how it's going to rule me. So I don't set big limits. I just say, I'm going to stay in bed. So as I stay in bed and I sit up and I feel this rising of tension, In me, as this wave of fear goes through me, I'm just, I'm just absolutely bringing the capacity of now along with the fear, so that it's just rolling through now. As and my job is to keep it framed within now. As soon as the narrative takes over about how terrible the condition is and how I'm not losing sleep and I'm not going to be able to give my talk tomorrow, or whatever it might be then fear has that rules the narrative. So I begin to see that fear rules the narrative. It rules mind speak. If I go into mind speak, I'm on its territory. If I stay now, if I hold the di- dimension of now and give very little creeds to the mind speak, which continues to move through, then I see that fear is not only held but it's also becomes very quiet. There may be a little ruffling, a little a little disturbance as I find myself weighing into what fear is telling me. But essentially it has no rule except through the verbalization it gives. And that to offset that verbalization or just to see that its verbalization isn't the this, this story isn't true. I mean, it, how does it know what it's, how does fear know what the future is going to bring? It seems very confident that it does, but it's no possibility that it does. It's zero possibility that it's accurate in everything it's saying. So that means to speak, the narrative isn't true. So, so then now is true. I can count on now being true because I can see now as being true. So I invest in now and not and that's how, that's how it works. And tonight, if it happened again, it may take me a while to get to that. It doesn't matter to me. I give myself over to that lesson. If I weigh in and say, oh, I want to go back to sleep, oh, God, this is going to be, then I'm within its rule. It tells me to get out of bed. I said, no, we'll establish some limitations here. I'm going to establish some guidelines for you. From the beginning, I'm staying in bed. Okay, I'm going to make it rough for you. You're welcome to make it as rough as you are. I'll toss and turn, yell and scream, but I'm staying in bed. And so then, you, see, you do it very softly. It's very soft. And the next time it comes and it doesn't condense, it's a God, I don't really want to do this again. I really want to get my sleep. Oh, God. As soon as I go into that line of thinking. All right, so here I am. See? So no longer is it the trump card of the spirit. I mean, the trump card of the mind. The mind has a trump card. Fear is the trump card. Fear is what it plays when it knows that it can't get reaction from anything else. Resolution isn't forceful. It's gentle. It's kind. It doesn't create an enemy, even a fear. It just sees that that fear's power comes from something that's misguided. That's all. Is there a difference between resolve and soft will? I thought I that was what the talk was about mostly. That is, the self-will is an incomplete resolve. Right? When the self is in charge of its own resolution, it's an unconscious. It's partially conscious and mostly unconscious. <laughs> um, and I find myself continuing to with the to actually go into these. Is there, I keep telling myself is there a way that you conscious mind in the escape behavior. Or yes, yes, no, no. So she's saying, what if I just go, what if fear has too much control and I go into the escape behavior? I refuse to ha- bring that first part in. No one is behind anyone else. Consciousness is always even. If you put yourself back there, you bring yourself down forward. Okay, so that doesn't mean that sometimes fear doesn't rule. When it rules, you can give yourself over to the ruling. Let, go outside, breathe the stars, go watch TV, just feel yourself, just, but just keep your, your, your eyes as open as you can. So that you're just catching little glances of birds that are passing, right? Just little, like just, something's happening here, I'm not sure what it is, okay? Doesn't matter. Go screaming, yelling, let it, let the energies move you like a rapid flowing... Just go, right? And the next time, you'll know a little more about it. And it will be a little more conscious. Won't be pleasant, but you'll know a little more about it. You see? You will have made it some inroads into making it conscious. You know all about fear. It has no hold on you any longer. It's because we refuse to look at it. We want to escape it. But if you're conscious in the escape, then you're playing your theme within that song. Okay? So that's a good way to do it.